0: All right, well, our scripture passage for this morning is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 7. We are going to be reading verses 1 through 5. Let's dive into God's good word together this morning. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Amen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Praise God. You may be seated. Uh, Well, good morning. My name is John Vick. I'm the campus pastor of One Church. Uh, One Church is the new faith community, the the church within a church here at Acts 2. And we actually have church on Friday nights, which is really fun, uh, at 630 in the other building. Uh, We call it the chapel. And anyways, I'm really excited about diving into the Sermon on the Mount with you all. This morning, Uh, but first I want to share about my week a little bit Uh, So Monday it was my first day back to college. Uh, I'm actually a senior at oklahoma city university I'm a religion major there and it's just really cool to say i'm a senior now I just love being able to say that, you know knowing that in less than a year I'm going to be a graduate. I'm so excited But but there's something I found out about the first week of class each and every single semester The first week should be called syllabus week Right, Because in every single class, you're handed the syllabus, or a, does anyone here know the plural of syllabus? Syllabi, that's great. You know, the things they teach you in college. But, uh, but yeah, you're, you're handed so many different syllabi in all of your different classes, and, and they tell you the objectives of the class, they tell you the goals, the grading scale, the due dates, all of the many, many papers you're going to have to write, you know, all, all that's found on the syllabus. But there's something in particular I want to point out about the syllabus, and it's the list of required texts or, or the books that you have to get for each and every single class. And, and I'm sure most of us here this morning are kind of aware of this already, but college books are expensive, right? They are very expensive. They are cheap by no means. And, uh, and so I was absolutely delighted to find that one of the books that was on the required text list was a book I already owned. Uh, It's this book found up on the screen. It's called You Lost Me, Why Young Christians Are Leaving Church and Rethinking Faith. Ooh, isn't that a title that just kind of grabs your attention and makes you want to read what's inside of it? Well, anyways, this book, it addresses a major problem that the church in the United States is facing. There are lots and lots and lots of young people leaving the church. In fact, it even gives this startling statistic. Out of Americans from ages 18 to 29 with the Christian background, blank percent dropped out of church after regular attendance. Do we have any ideas as what the percentage might be? 59%. over half, 59%, based on that statistic alone, over one in two young Christians, people who grew up in the church, are going to drop out of the church, possibly to never return again. And we acknowledge that this isn't a problem just for young people. People of all ages leave the church for various reasons. You know, the the music's too loud, or the music's too quiet, or the pastor's too young, or, well, maybe I shouldn't lift that one up. In all seriousness, though, maybe you're here this morning and, and maybe you left the church for a while because maybe a person or even a pastor hurt you and, and maybe this morning you're just kind of dipping your toe in the water, seeing if it's safe to come back in or, or maybe it was the way that a certain church in your childhood viewed God. You know, God wasn't viewed as this loving father or this compassionate shepherd. Uh, rather, God was viewed as, as angry or as condemning and just filled with wrath. And that drove you outside the walls of the church, and you're like, if that's really the God that Christians are worshiping, I don't know if I really want to have anything to do with the church. So yeah, people are leaving the church today, and it's a problem that we should care deeply about. But why do I say all that? Why do I bring all of that up this morning? What in the world does it have to do with, with Matthew chapter 7? What does it have to do with, with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount? Well, I'm so glad you asked (laughs) because it has a lot to do with what we read in Matthew at chapter 7. I say all of that to say this. I fully believe that whenever we as the church, whenever we as a faith community live into what Matthew chapter 7 says, we are going to create a community that people not only won't want to leave, but they'll want to bring their friends to also. A community that people will want to bring their friends to is created when we live into what Matthew chapter 7 says. And so it's my hope that this morning and each and every single day, we will be able to cultivate that kind of uh, Matthew 7 community here at Acts 2 United Methodist Church. But I think I like the phrase Dallas Willard uses a little bit better. He calls it the community of prayerful love. And we as the church, we can actually live into that. Right, This community right here that we, we meet on, on Sunday mornings, we can actually be the community of prayerful love. So, so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning together in Matthew chapter 7. I have five points I'd like to make about the community of prayerful love. The first one is this. The community of prayerful love does not condemn. Does not condemn. And this actually arises uh, right out of what we read earlier in Matthew chapter 7. This is the first verse we read together. Jesus said, do not judge so that you may not be judged. Uh, now, before we get any further, uh, before we go any further down this road, I, I do want to say that Jesus isn't talking about discernment here. <laughs> He's not talking about good judgment. There are examples of good judgment. I think the fact that each of us are here this morning is an example of good judgment. Did you know that you could be doing anything you want right now? You could be at home mowing the lawn. Well, it's kind of rainy. I guess you can't do that right now. But but you could be sitting on the couch watching TV or or sleeping in. You know, you could be doing anything you want right now but you judged it best to come to church and to worship the living God with your brothers and sisters in Jesus. If you ask me, that's pretty good judgment. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. No, what Jesus is talking about is condemning a person, and that always arises from one's feelings of superiority. And that's really what Jesus is getting to in this passage. He's saying, don't judge, don't condemn, don't look down upon other people because of their shortcomings. That's what Jesus is getting to. But there's something I found to be true here in this world. It's difficult to live a life free of judgment. It's difficult to live a life free of condemnation. In fact, judging a person, it almost comes natural to us. It's so easy to do. I was reminded of that just this week. I was in the library on campus, and I was trying to read a few books, just catch up on my reading that has already picked up since the semester started. That's just a week ago. And, uh, and so I was on the second floor of the library, and there was this office pretty close to where I was reading. And there were all these professors and faculty members gathered in this office, and the door was open, and they were talking so, so loud. I mean, it was distracting. I, I couldn't even get to the point where I could read without just being distracted by, by all that was going on. And, and, you know, I like to think of myself as a not very judgmental person. I like to think of myself as not very judgy. But I was having some judgy thoughts, you know, whenever I was trying to read in the library. I was like, we're in a library. You're professors. People are trying to read. And, and so on my way out, I was like tempted to kind of give them the look, you know, on my way out. Just so they knew, just so they knew that I wasn't happy about how loud they were talking about But anyways, even though that was a small, silly, insignificant story, I was just kind of reminded that it is so easy to judge. It is so easy to look down on others and, and to condemn people. It's almost just our, our default setting. And you know, I know we live in, in 2019 where it's almost kind of cool and hip and mainstream to say, yeah, well, people in the church, Christians, they're just judgmental. They're very condescending. They're very hypocritical. But, but something I found it true is that, that you can find judgment in just about any place you look. In the workplace, think of all the judgment that goes around the office or in the schools and middle schools, high schools, college campuses. Think of all the judgment that takes place there. Even in our own homes, there's, there's judgment all around us. But there is no room for any condemnation and mean-spirited judgment in the church. And that's a truth that we see all throughout the New Testament. We read this in Romans chapter 8, an awesome chapter. Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation whatsoever. But the sad thing is so many times condemnation can creep into the churches. Uh, So my freshman year at OCU, I actually served as a youth director at this uh, church in a small town, and I really enjoyed it. It was a great year, and I'm thankful for the ministry that took place during that time. And there's this one Wednesday night uh, where some of the ladies from the church had all of their crafts and all of their blankets, and they were going to sell it the next day, and so they had it all setting out on these tables in the fellowship hall. Uh, The fellowship hall is just a fancy church word for where you have meals, right? And so all of these, you know, nifty little crafts are setting all over the tables, and, and one of the ladies came up to me and said, now, John. I know you're going to have a lot of youth here tonight. Don't let them come anywhere near the fellowship hall. And I'm like, don't worry. It's not going to be a problem. You won't have to worry about that at all. Well, anyways, flash forward a couple hours. It's Wednesday night. Uh, all of the youth are, are in this one room, and it's freezing outside. Like, you, no one wants to go outside. A- and I say, you know what? Hot chocolate sounds kind of good. Let, let's go to the kitchen, and, and let's, let's get some hot chocolate. Now, the thing with the layout of the church, though, is you have to go through the fellowship hall, to get to the kitchen. Some of you already know where I'm going with this story. And, uh, and so a couple of the youth, they were a little bit ahead of me. And so they ran into the fellowship hall. And guess who was there waiting? The same lady who said, Don't let the youth come in here. And she didn't know I was coming around the corner. And she started yelling at this youth. And she said, No, 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 no. I talked to John. You all should not be in here. And, and she just went on and on and just, just chewed him out, basically. And whenever I came around the corner, she was kind of embarrassed because she knew that I had heard all that she just said. But, but I remember thinking that night, if I was that youth that didn't grow up in the church and I came one night and you know, I got yelled at, I don't know if I'd be all that interested in, in coming back. If that's what church people are all like, I don't know how interested I am in coming back to youth and worshiping with these people. And thankfully though, just to give you peace of mind, that youth did come back and I'm so thankful that he did. But I know there's a lot of youth that things like that have happened, and they haven't came back. 59% of them, if we go off the statistic we started off with earlier. See, condemnation doesn't work. It just doesn't. Condemnation doesn't work for many, many reasons. So this is my hope for us as Acts 2, that we would replace condemnation with compassion, that we would be a compassionate, grace-filled, Holy Spirit-filled community, that instead of looking upon people's flaws, instead of looking down upon other people, condemning them, let's offer grace. Let's offer compassion. Let's offer a helping hand because it's easy to judge. It takes no skill. It takes no talent to judge somebody or to condemn somebody. But it's so much harder to acknowledge that each and every single one of us often have logs in our eyes and that we are in need, in desperate need of God's grace, each and every single one of us. So whenever we do have a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ who is struggling with something, We don't have a conversation of belittlement with them. We don't look down upon them or judge them or condemn them. Rather, whenever we approach a brother or sister in Christ who's struggling with something, we hope to see them restored, right? Because with Christ, restoration is possible. What a beautiful truth right there. With Christ, restoration is possible. And we get to be a part of that. We get to help Christ restore people. But here's the thing. Restoration doesn't require condemnation. You don't need a condemnation. You don't need judgment to help restore someone in Christ. All right, so in this sermon series, again, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And just to kind of give a recap, we've looked each week at how Jesus offers a better way, a higher and a happier and a holier way. So whenever the world says to invite only the important, Jesus says, no, invite all. When the world says to be angry, Jesus says, love your enemies. When the world says live to be seen by other people, Jesus says, no, live your life for God, for an audience of one. When the world says to worry, Jesus says, don't worry. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. And then today we talk about how whenever the world says to to condemn, when the world says to be critical and to judge others, Jesus says, don't judge. Don't condemn offer grace, offer compassion. And so this morning, we remember that a condemnation-free life is possible. A condemnation-free life is possible. We can live a life that is 100% free of condemnation. We can live a life free of condemnation from Christ and from the crowds. So let's unpack that for a second and talk about that. First, let's talk about living a life free of condemnation from Christ. And, And to do this, I wanna share a story from the Gospel of John chapter eight. It's a, a beautiful story, and, and the entire night, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and he's praying. He's having an amazing night with God, conversing with his Father in heaven, and, and then after that night is over, he goes into the temple, and he starts doing what he always does. He starts teaching and loving people, probably healing a few people and talking about the kingdom of God. Exciting things are happening then. But then these religious people bring this woman to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. They completely humiliate her, right? They do this in front of all of the crowds gathered around Jesus and again say, Jesus, what should we do? The law of Moses says we should stone such woman. What should we do? And the scriptures say that Jesus bends down and starts writing in the sand. We don't know what Jesus was writing. Some people have different ideas, but scripture just doesn't say what Jesus was writing in the sand. But, But then he stood up and he says, Let the one among you without sin... Be the first to cast the stone. And what happens next is so beautiful. One by one, the stones start dropping. People start walking away until it's just Jesus and this woman left. Just the two. I love what Augustine said about that. He said, the two were left alone. Misery and mercy. And here's what we read next in John chapter 8. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go on your way. From now on, do not sin again. Friends, that's our Messiah. That's our Savior. That's our Lord. That's our God. The only one who was without sin. The only one who could have cast the first stone. Offering grace. Offering compassion. Not condemnation. And then earlier in that same book, in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, we read the most quoted and famous verse of all time. What is it? John three sixteen. Right. For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son. Whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Right. Uh, a lot of us have probably memorized that verse. But, but the thing is, so many times we take that verse out of the chapter it's written in, and we forget that it's actually part of a, a larger, uh, bigger context. And, and so the verse we read after is this. Let's read this together out loud. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Christ didn't come to condemn. Christ didn't come just to judge us. We were already condemned by the wrong choices that we made, as we read earlier in chapter 3. But Christ came to rescue. Christ came to deliver. Christ came to save the world. Every broken heart, every lonely and crushed spirit, Christ came to save. And then in Romans chapter 8, the chapter we read from earlier, Paul asks this question. Who is to condemn? Who is going to condemn us? And he goes, it is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. May we rest in that. May we rest in that verse right there. Knowing that Christ not only doesn't condemn us, he prays for us. He laid down his life for us and raised it up again to save, not to condemn. All right, well, if living a life free of condemnation from Christ is possible, how about living a life free of condemnation from the crowds? That too is possible. Even if all of the people around us are judgmental, even if all the people around us are very critical and condemning, we can still live a life free of condemnation from the crowds. And do you know how we're going to do it? Here it is. Ignore it. Drop it. Don't let it uh, weigh us down. Let's not allow it to, to just drag us down. Let's ignore it. Instead, let's do this. Let's focus on the freedom and the goodness and the love and the mercy of Christ. I think Dallas Willard says it best whenever he says this. I've learned to look at other people's condemnation only while simultaneously holding it in full view the fact that Jesus, far from condemning me, died for me. And is right now, as we speak, intervening on my behalf in the heavens. Mm. Wow. Jesus doesn't condemn us. It is possible to live a life free of condemnation from both Christ and from the crowds. And I hope that knowing that and living into that reality would help us go forward with hope and with confidence. All right, so number one, the community of prayerful love doesn't condemn. Number two, the community of prayerful love prayerfully discerns. Uh, Let's look at the next verse Jesus says in Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them underfoot and turn and maul you. All right, was that anyone's memory verse this week? You've been memorizing it? Okay. You know, I've never seen that verse on a magnet before on a refrigerator. I've never seen it printed on someone's shirt before on the front or the back. You know, I've never seen like someone posted on Facebook or Instagram saying like, I had a great quiet time this morning. You know, I read Matthew 7, 6. God was really speaking to me. And, you know, I've never, I've never seen that before. It's, let's just be honest. It's a weird verse, right? It, it's kind of strange. And, and really, there's not a lot of teaching and preaching over this verse. And I think because of that, there can be a lot of misunderstandings uh, surrounding it. Uh, so really quickly, let's talk about what Jesus is. Not saying in Matthew 7, 6. He's not saying that we should give only good and valuable things to people we deem worthy. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. In fact, if that was what Jesus was saying, it would really go against the entire life and message of Jesus. Because really, Jesus came because no one was worthy. No one could earn or deserve God's love. That's why Jesus did come. That's why we call it grace today. So, so that's not what Jesus is saying here. That we should only give good and valuable things to those we deem worthy. Instead, what Jesus is saying, what he's getting to is helpfulness or usefulness. Uh, what can a pig do with a pearl? Nothing. Except what's the character of the, the puppet with the pig? I'm trying to remember her. Yes, Miss Piggy, yes, yes. Uh, I was thinking of that last time. I'm like, you know what? Miss Piggy does something with pearls. But besides Miss Piggy, excluding Miss Piggy, uh, a pig can do nothing with a pearl except trample it or, or destroy it. Uh, Dallas Willard also comments upon this verse and says, the point is not the waste of the pearl but that the person given the pearl is not helped. So I think the question becomes for us, for the community of prayerful love, who will be helped the most with this? How can I maximize what I do? How can I maximize what I give? And of course we do that, we know that best, by praying, by discernment, by spending time like Jesus on the Mount of Olives, just talking with the Father. So we give things to those who will Uh, Appreciate it, who it will help and benefit. Uh, I think you all will appreciate this story. Um, I was reminded of it this week. Uh, Up on the screen, you're going to see a picture of a one church pin. It's in the top. Uh, You know, we have them out on Friday nights. People use them to fill out their sermon notes. And, anyways, a couple months ago, I was looking through the one church pins in the chapel and I found the rare one church pin. The, really, the only thing that makes it rare is it's a, it's a misprint, right? You can see how, how the normal One Church pen have, have red and white ink on, on both sides. Well, uh, the rare One Church pen, it was a misprint. So there's just red on one side and white on the other side. And so I found that a couple months ago, and it was whenever uh, Pastor Andy Nelms was still here. Uh, for you all who may not know Pastor Andy, he was the pastor who started One Church, the pastor that or the, the church that I'm now the pastor of. And now he and his family are in Texas doing great ministry there. And, and anyways, I found this pen right before he was going to leave. And I had to stop, enter into my mind. And I was like, you know, Andy would love this pen. He is going to treasure this pen. He's going to hold on to it forever. I mean, just think, the church that he started, the second pastor is, is giving him the, the rare one-church pen. And, you know, I was thinking of him like hanging it on his wall and framing it and doing all these things. I was just so excited about giving him the rare one-church pen. So I got that pen, the rare one-church pen. I got that sticky note put it on it then i set the pin on his desk just so excited you know even when i was driving home that night i'm like Andy's gonna love that i can't wait to see his face and and so the next time i was in the office i said hey andy did you get the rare one church pin and he goes oh oh were you the one that put that on my desk here I, i think it's in the trash can right here and he threw it away no kidding he threw the pin away true story story. And I share that, <laughs> goodness, I share that to say this. We give important things to people who will do important things with them. And so the way that, to know how to do that best is through prayer and through discernment. So that's what the community of prayerful love does. Number two, prayerfully discerns. Number three, the community of prayerful love believes in the power of prayer. Jesus goes on from there after talking about pearls and pigs, and he says this, Ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who searches, finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. And of course, Jesus isn't here saying that prayer is like a vending machine, right? That you can pray for whatever you want to pray, and it's just automatically going to appear right in front of you. That's not what Jesus is getting to right here. But he's talking about how prayer is a way of aligning ourselves with God, the the creator of the universe, the one who loves us, the one who created us in his very image, right? And so uh, the more that we pray, the more time we spend with God, the more our prayers are going to look like the prayers Jesus prayed. Uh, The more time we pray and spend time with God, our prayers are going to look more like the Lord's prayer found in the chapter before this and in Matthew chapter six, God's will, God's kingdom, love, forgiveness, all that is just going to naturally arise in our prayers. And we as the church believe that there is power in that. We believe that there is power in prayer, that things actually happen, things actually change whenever we do pray. You know, I I love reading through the New Testament and and reading about the different saints and, and the different letters that they wrote. And something that always stands out to me is these people, they believed in the power of prayer. They believed, again, things actually happened. Things could actually change whenever they prayed. And on that same note, they believed some things might not happen if they didn't pray. Uh, in fact, if you read their letters, they'll say things like, by your prayers, I hope to do so and so. By your prayers, I hope to bring the gospel to this place. By your prayers, I hope to see you by wintertime. Right? They believed in the power of prayer. They had this unshakable confidence in God who hears all of our prayers. And so I love reflection questions. And, and so my reflection question for us this morning is, how powerful do I believe prayer is? how powerful do I believe prayer is? Is it something I simply do before I eat dinner each night my family or or maybe say before a ball game? Or is it something that shapes my life? Is it something that helps me align myself with the God of the universe? See, we as the community of prayerful love, we believe in the power of prayer. The fourth point I want to make is this. The community of prayerful love is centered around a God who is good. Jesus goes on from there and says this in verses nine through 11. Is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for bread, will give a stone? Or if the child asks for a fish, will give a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? See, that is essential for us as the church. Knowing and believing and living into the goodness of God. That is central to us as the community of prayerful love. And so for all of our days, we can sing of the goodness of God. We can, like the psalmist, say, God is good. And God's steadfast love endures forever. That's repeated over and over and over again. In Scripture, Yes, we believe in the goodness, the greatness, the awesomeness of God. However, the the sad truth is there's been a lot of things said about God and God's character that really don't align with that. There's been a lot of false narratives told about God. And so this week I was reminded of the song. We sing it sometimes here at Acts 2, Good, Good Father by Chris Tomlin. And, And it's really like a love song to God almost. And I love the first words of that song which say, I've heard a thousand stories, O God of what people think you're like. But I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of the night. And God, you tell me that you're pleased and that you're never alone, and that I'm never alone. God, you are a good, good father. It's who you are, and I am loved by you. And so I hope that today we would be reminded that we serve a good God that God is good, that Christ came not to condemn, Christ came to save, and that we have the Holy Spirit living and roaring within us, equipping us and empowering us to go out and to build God's kingdom here on earth. All right, number five, the final point. The community of prayerful love treats others the way we want to be treated. Jesus goes on and says this, in everything do to others as you would have them do to you, for this is the law and the prophet's. You know, that's the kind of community that I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of a community that really treats other people the way that I want to be treated. A community that treats all people with love. A a community that sees the value, the worth, the giftedness in each and every single person. And what Jesus said about that verse right there is the same thing he said in Matthew 22 about the two greatest commands to love God and to love neighbor. For this is the law of the prophets. The law of the prophets hang on that right there. And so this week, and every single week, as we uh, seek to step into our identity as the the community of prayerful love, I hope that we would consider these our three action steps. The first one is this, read Romans chapter 8 this week. Man, it will not disappoint, I promise you. It is so good, so rich. It's one of the most beloved chapters in in all of Scripture, and and again, there's just such depth in it. And in it, over and over, we're reminded that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, The second action step, remember The power of prayer. Remember the power of prayer. Let's remember the goodness and the greatness of God. Let's remember that every prayer we pray, God hears. God is listening. And and God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine. And then the third action step should sound familiar. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Taken right out of Jesus' own words here in Matthew chapter 7. And I don't know about you, but I want to be cared for. I want to be loved. I want to belong to something. And, and whenever I fall, whenever I make mistakes, as I'm bound to as a 21-year-old pastor, probably making one right now, I don't know, and I, I don't even know about it. But, but whenever I fall, whenever I make mistakes, I hope that I would be around people here in this community of prayerful love that will help restore me, that won't judge me, that won't condemn me or belittle me, but rather offer a helping hand, offer compassion, offer grace. All right. Well, I started this sermon uh, this morning by talking about a problem. People are leaving the church. People aren't coming back. Well, I believe that Matthew chapter 7 describes this community that people won't want to leave, but again, they'll want to bring their friends to. They'll want to go out and say, come and see. Come and see all that God is doing here. Come and see the lives that are being transformed in this very place. Come and see the love that is radiated at this place called Acts 2 United Methodist Church. That's my hope. That's my hope for us as the church, that we would be the community of prayerful love, a community that doesn't condemn, a community that prayerfully discerns, a community that believes in the the power and the awesomeness of prayer, a community that is centered in the goodness and the greatness and the awesomeness of God, and a community where every person is treated with love, compassion, and grace. That's what the community of prayerful love is like. And I believe that we can actually live into that. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so, so good. And we're reminded of that just this morning. And I pray that, um, God, our entire community would be shaped and centered around you. That our eyes would be fixed on your son Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And in all that we do, uh, we would do for your glory. Oh God, and that we would treat every person we encounter as we would treat ourselves that we would treat others the way we want to be treated. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for being here this morning. And all this we pray in in Jesus' name, the, the one who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Praise God.